Reflections on Life at the End of Time, Part 7, the seventh talk in the series, was presented by Jack Crabtree on August 9, 2015, at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a nonprofit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Well, a couple weeks has stretched into, I don't know how many, but this will be the last of my ruminations on life at the end of the present time. As most of you know by now, I'm suggesting that I think we are at the end of the present time as I defined it earlier in the series. And so the question then becomes, how should we look at that? How should we think about that? If at the end of the present time, how should we live? And as it turns out, we should live the same way that we would live if it weren't at the end of the present time, for the most part. And as I started to make some concrete suggestions about what our emphasis should be, I began by suggesting, well, I'm taking my cues from a passage in 2 Thessalonians, I think. First or 2 Thessalonians, if we're at the end of time, we should pursue faith and love, he says. Put on the breastplate of faith and love. And we've been looking at the faith part of that. And I propose that our focus should be on gaining understanding, the understanding as the Bible looks at the term understanding. We need to know God. We need to know what he's up to in the world. We need to really grasp the worldview of the Bible, understand the gospel. It's only with that kind of understanding that we will be fortified to persevere in the days ahead, I think. And how do we pursue understanding? I propose that we gain understanding by understanding the Bible. And I think that's where we left off with our emphasis on studying the Bible. Our goal in understanding the Bible is not to be entertained by it. It's to master an understanding of it. And that means, of course, work. It's not always fun. It can be tedious. It can be time-consuming. But... It's by really focusing ourselves on a mastery of its worldview and its teaching that we gain understanding, the kind of understanding that the Bible's talking about. So that was last week. The next point is, I think it's more important than ever, it's always been the case, but it's more important than ever that we be courageous in our pursuit of the truth. We have to exhibit courage. Fear and cowardice is one of the biggest obstacles to understanding. That's why we get channeled into herds in our churches, in our Christian culture, because we're afraid of what other people might think. We're afraid of what other people might do to us. So instead of actually pursuing what is actually true as that is taught by the scripture, we readily kind of roll over and accept what other people are telling us is true because that won't make us stand out and won't make us a target. We won't be insulted. We won't be called names or worse in some cultures at some times in history. So it's a huge obstacle to understanding, and it's very important that we be heroic in our pursuit of truth. And by heroic, I mean that however much we might feel afraid, 
feeling afraid is not evil. Feeling afraid is just being human. But the question is, what do you do with that feeling of fear? Do you allow it to control your actions or paralyze you, as the case may be, into inaction? Do you allow your feeling of fear to dictate what you're going to do and choose, and in this case, believe? Or are you going to do what's right and pursue what's true in spite of the fact that it scares you? You're afraid. I don't think there's any question but what, from the standpoint of biblical truth, we have to overcome fear and cowardice and be heroic by always choosing what's right and good and true in spite of how afraid we might be in the face of making that choice. Ultimately, fear left untrumped by my desire for truth is a damnable spiritual condition, I think. I read earlier in the series that passage in Revelation, who is outside the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem? Cowards. It's the cowards who are left out. So this is not a trivial matter. And we need to face into it with the kind of seriousness that it deserves. Fear-motivated choices are never trivial. I think they seem trivial to us. I get afraid, and so I say something to protect myself. I defend myself because I'm afraid. But that may be a small pebble in the pond, but the ripple effects of the little trivial things we do out of fear ultimately have wide-ranging implications. Fear is never trivial. It always has ultimately devastating consequences. And when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to truth, that's especially the case. As many of you know, I think some of the basic core doctrines of orthodoxy have been held in place by fear, not by rationality and reason and the Bible. And with, I think, devastating consequences for a lot of people over generation after generation after generation. In this day and age, not only will we be tempted to fear other Christians and other Christian cultures and other groups of Christians, but increasingly, there's, we're going to have to fear the censure of the wider culture. They're going to call us hateful, stupid, unenlightened among other things. Are we going to accept the insults and nonetheless not be intimidated into abandoning truth because by embracing truth they insult us? Or are we going to be cowed by the threat of those insults into rethinking what we believe, reconsidering what we believe, and at the very least softening what we believe? We can't be afraid Culture is going to silence us completely if we are afraid. One of the most effective silencing weapons out there right now is to accuse you of getting political. Now you're becoming political. Oh, okay, then I'll shut up. Many of the most important social issues of our day, there's nothing political about them. They are moral issues. They are absolutely clear-cut issues of being in violation of the goodness the righteousness and holiness of God. And if I make a comment, never mind that there may be some faction or another in our society who have decided to champion the opposite point of view. It's not a political position that we are taking when we side against their icon. 
If I reject their icon of legitimacy, I do so because it's against what the Bible teaches, not because I'm picking sides in some political battle of some kind. Politics is superficial and trivial. I don't care about politics. None of us should care about politics. But we should care deeply about what God has revealed, about this truth, about us and God and reality that God has revealed, and should passionately persevere with passion in embracing what the Bible actually teaches. So, a call to courage. I think we're going to need it more than any of us in our lifetime have ever been called upon to practice courage. Increasingly, courage is going to become necessary. Secondly, I think we need to practice discernment. And I, don't, I think we underappreciate how much discernment is a skill that you gain by practicing it. You don't just have discernment. You don't just wake up one day, you're a believer filled with the Holy Spirit, and now you can discern. It doesn't work that way. You need to practice discernment. We've already seen the passage in Hebrews where he talks about those who through practice have trained their senses to discern good from bad. Sometimes they translate it good from evil. There he's talking about doctrine, I think. He's talking about good theology from bad theology, good belief from bad belief, accurate belief from inaccurate belief. But I think we can expand, extrapolate on what Paul is talking about there. It's also true with respect to moral values, knowing the difference between good, literally good and evil. How do we do that? Through practice. But we need to practice both kinds of discernment practicing discerning good ideas from bad ideas, true ideas from false ideas, and good moral values from evil moral values. We need to practice both. And what do I mean by that? As we talk to each other, as we have conversations with each other, as we listen to all the talking heads out there in all the various domains of our culture, we should constantly be asking ourselves the question, What's missing in their perspective? What's incomplete in their perspective? Or what's downright fallacious in their perspective? Oftentimes, people have a generally otherwise very good and right perspective on things. They're using their head. They're using their common sense. They're intelligent. They're perceptive. And they're saying all kinds of good things. But oftentimes, those good things are not rooted in the gospel itself. It oftentimes the perspective out of which they say otherwise good and right things is coming from a perspective that's a more secular perspective than it is a biblical perspective. And it's eccentric. It's out of balance. It's not really centered in the right kind of center, namely what God is doing in the world through his son, Jesus. Well, if they're missing that piece then there's something fundamentally askew in what they're teaching us and what they're saying to us. And we need to have the discernment to realize, okay, there's some insightful things you've said, there's some good points there, but it ain't the truth. It's not the truth that I need to embrace. It's just a lot of good insights that you have added to my thought processes, which is fine. Truth is out there in a lot of different places and a lot of different sources, and we should be willing and able to glean it from wherever it comes, wherever we find it. But to integrate those insights and those truths into a worldview and a message 
and a belief system that I can plant both feet in and live my life out of, I need to do that. Don't be looking to other people to do that because most of the people out there in the world are not believers. They're not coming from the same perspective that the Bible is coming from. So however right and good many of the things they say are, it's not the truth itself. And if I am going to pursue the truth itself, I'm going to need to be able to pick out from all the ideas that come my way the good from the bad, the well-founded and well-rooted from the not-so-well-founded and that which is rooted someplace else. And I need to do that. But to do that, I need to practice. I, and you don't practice if you don't stop to ask yourself the question, is that true or is that false? Is that right or is that wrong? Is that good or is that bad? To what extent is it good and to what extent is it wrong? If I'm not asking the question, I never answer. And if I'm not answering it, I'm not practicing. I'm not practicing finding the truth from all the things that are out there. Wisdom, it seems to me, will never give to its culture the benefit of the doubt. Notice the black and white stark contrast that the New Testament always makes. Do not be a friend of the world. What is our faith? We have overcome the world, John says in 1 John. The world is taken for granted that it's going to lead us astray. The world is going in a different direction. The world is allergic to the things that I am being called upon to embrace and to know and to understand. So wisdom never sort of grants to culture, well, you're well-intentioned, you know what you're talking about, whatever you say, that's just fine. But I think we have been lulled in American culture and Christians as well into kind of granting to culture the benefit of the doubt. You're probably speaking the truth. What you're saying to me is probably innocent, if not downright beneficial to me. So let me hear you out. Let me listen to you. And let me simply take what you give me. We should never simply take what culture gives us. We should always run it through the filter of our understanding of what the Bible is teaching and strain out the foreign alien elements, the false elements, the error that's there so that we can only accept the truth of what's being said. Human beings are depraved. Everything they think, say, and do is tainted by that depravity. We have to stop being so kindly and accepting of cultural ideas and values because they come from those very depraved individuals that we are. They're motivated by the same kind of selfish, self-protecting, God-hating stuff that we're made of. That's where their ideas are ultimately coming from. Know that, understand that, and be cautious and wary in accordance with that. The ideas of the world are self-destructively evil. So why do I give them the benefit of the doubt? Will they say some right and intelligent things? Sure. Then accept it for what it is. But the very premise upon which their whole life is based is self-destructively evil. Don't go there. Don't accept that. We need to understand the difference between wisdom and intelligence. An intelligent, articulate person can appear wise when, in fact, he's as foolish and ignorant as he can be. I'll never forget my freshman year in college. I was taking a freshman seminar called Mental Tools for Scientific Thinking. 
And the professor was a Nobel Prize winning physicist. Brilliant man, obviously. Just absolutely brilliant. But we had the seminar in his home. And as I looked at the contrast between this man and the way he treated his wife and the way he related to people, as opposed to the Christian environment and Christian home that I had come out of, watching my parents live their lives and interact with each other, it was crystal clear from day one, this man's a fool. He's an absolute fool. He's an incredibly brilliant fool, (laughs) but he's a fool. They're not the same thing. Wisdom is not the intelligence to make a belief or value sound and appear to be true. That's what intelligent people can do. They're brilliant enough that they can take some belief, they can take some moral value, and give it the appearance of being true. But wisdom, true wisdom, is actually knowing the difference between what is true, right, and good, as opposed to what's false and bad and evil. That's true wisdom. So don't be faked out by the intelligent people in our culture who are in their folly, sharing their folly with us, but making it seem and appear to us to be true. Even if you cannot analyze the fallacy of what they're saying, your own instincts, your own, your own intuitions will alert you to there's something wrong here. This is not right. This is not good. This is not true. And the more we understand, based on what we absorb from the Bible teaching us, the more those intuitions and those instincts will be able to guide us accurately and correctly. So that's the third thing, is we need to practice discernment relative to what we are hearing in our culture. The fourth thing, and all this is related to our understanding, but the fourth thing is to learn the nature and character of authentic belief in God's truth. We have to stop being naive and short-sighted, so naive and so short-sighted that we grant brotherhood status to everyone who tells us they love Jesus. It's not true. It wasn't true in the time of Jesus, and it's not true today. Or worse, they don't even have to tell us they love Jesus. They just have to tell us they're Christians. And we go, oh, okay. No, of course not. There must be 50,000 ways to be a Christian. Only one of them leads to eternal life. That's the one we're interested in. So we have to be not so naive about that. What's the difference between true belief, authentic belief, real belief, that is produced in us by the Spirit of God at work in us, and all those other cultural manifestations of belief that you confront on a daily basis? We need to learn the difference. If you tell me that X is a Christian, person X is a Christian, and to anyone who actually knows the New Testament, knows the Bible, knows what true belief looks like, it's clear that they're not a Christian, then you're revealing the very real likelihood that your own belief lacks authenticity. Because you can't, you don't have any ground, any basis for recognizing that this is inauthentic. This person's faith is inauthentic. So it must, it could only be because your faith is not authentic and you don't even know what authentic faith actually is. That's where we need to go to work. We need to make sure that we believe, truly believe with the kind of belief that the New Testament is calling us to. And then we need to reflect on our belief and understand our own belief. What's going on in me? What is it that's happening inside of me 
that makes my belief real and authentic and a work of the Spirit of God in my life rather than something else. Once we know that, then we can tell the difference. Okay, that's all part of pursuing understanding, something that I think is critical for us to do at the end of the present time. A second thing I think we need to do is to pursue the love of God. We're going to have to be all the more diligent to pursue a love for God by determining not to rebel against him. It's all the more urgent if we are at the end of the present time because everything about the end of the present time is going to encourage you to not love God, to hate him, to reject him, to despise him. And typically, and I'm sure this will continue, typically our way of our hostility toward God has always been kind of passive. How do you demonstrate hostility toward God? By ignoring him. It's a cool hostility. It's indifference. It's apathy. It's just kind of, yeah, whatever. That, I'm sure, will continue, but we'll also see increasingly a kind of hot hostility toward God that is calling upon us to actually join them in their overt, explicit hostility toward God. Going back to the passage, it is First Thessalonians that I had quoted. Going back to First Thessalonians, now as to the times, I'm reading 1 through 11 of chapter 5 of First Thessalonians. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith, And that's what I have been talking about, pursuing, making it a commitment to pursue belief in the truth of the Bible. Put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God is not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Okay, so we're putting on the breastplate of faith and of love. Now, what is that? It is, of course, very tempting to think that that love that he's talking about is love for one another. But I don't think so. Notice that it's coupled with faith, faith and love. And I think our faith is our belief in the truth from God, And the love that he's talking about here is our love for God. And how do you love God? You love God by loving the things of God. On the one hand, the truth. That's why you pursue and are committed to the truth of the faith of the Bible. But to love God is to love what God loves, to love his will, his purposes in history, the promises that are being worked out in history, everything about God and what he's doing is ultimately to be the object of our love. 
I think most of my life, whenever people would talk about loving God, the only image that would come to mind is adoring him. And so the only thing I could ever manage was to invent God, not believe in the God who's the transcendent author of all of existence and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the God who's the father of Jesus, but God, I invented God and then tried to manufacture some kind of sentimental, emotional attachment to my imaginary best friend that I had created. That's the best I could do. If loving God is a psycho-emotional kind of experience, what else are you going to do? Because the true God, the God who actually exists, is very abstract to us. He's not abstract. He's concrete and real, but he seems abstract to us. He seems distant. He seems far away. How do you have an emotional attachment to a transcendent being who is in control of everywhere and is in every cotton-picking moment throughout all of history? How do you form an emotional attachment to that? One who's just as involved in somebody's life in China right now as he is in my own life right now. That's pretty involved, and it's pretty spread out, and it's pretty ubiquitous, and it's pretty universal. Do you love the universal? If you're Plato, you do. But (laughs) if you're not Plato, how do you love the universal? I just, I can't. I've never been able to muster that. And, but neither do I think is that what we're being called to. We're not to love God as my imaginary best friend. We are to love God by understanding who he is, what his role is, what his function is, how he's going about putting this story of human history, cosmic history, together, and deciding whether I like it. Do I like this God? who's playing this role, or do I not like this God? Do I like what he's revealed about himself through the Bible and through history, or do I not like this God? Those who are children of God learn to like him. And again, it's kind of like discernment. It takes practice. You have to face into those really difficult questions. When God wounds you, do you like the God who wounded you, who hurt you, who speared you through Do you like him? You have to learn that. That doesn't come naturally. Those are times when suffering is a time when we are tempted to tell God to go to hell. We're tempted to turn on him. We're tempted to hate him. We're tempted to make him the bad guy. But if we're children of God, there's something in us that says, but you can't do that. That would be a mistake. That would be foolish to make him the bad guy. Something else is going on here. There's something more complex. There's something more, there's something fuller that you're not grasping, Jack. So don't make him the bad guy. Sit and wait and watch and learn and get used to the idea. And for me, in my experience, the idea that I had to get used to is he is the creator and I'm the creature. He's the one whose prerogative it is to make his creation go however he wants his creation to go. I'm a player in that creation. And I wouldn't even have any existence if he did not will me into existence and give me a role to play. And it's totally his prerogative to make that role whatever he wants it to be. I've said this before, but I could feel it in my bones, this argument that would come up. God, you gave me existence. You sure as hell better make it worth my time. Isn't he obligated to me because 
he brought me into existence? No. I'm obligated to him because I wouldn't even have existence were it not for the author of my being. We get it backwards. We become so egocentric. We become so much, place ourselves at the center of our existence that we think God is somehow answerable to us, when in fact the reality is every one of us is answerable to God. So loving God is a choice. It's not something that just happens naturally. It's a choice we will make. At each and every one of those critical moments, we will decide, am I going to hate him or am I going to love him? Am I going to hold him in contempt or am I going to learn who he is? There's a close connection between loving God and knowing God. And we have to choose to know God. We have to choose to let what he's teaching us about himself be information that we want to take in and embrace and make our own. We choose to love God by choosing to know him. We were created to love God. We fail to love God because in our depravity and rebelliousness, we choose to stiff-arm him, to reject his claim on our life, and refuse to honor and value him as we ought to. By choosing not to dismiss him and the things that are important to him, then we are choosing to love him and know him. And that's the choice that we need to learn to make. But to choose to love God in that way, to choose to honor God in that way, is a fight, and it's a battle that we have to win. It's a fight against ourselves, because in our moral depravity, we want to hold God in contempt. We would love an excuse to hold him in contempt. So we have to do battle with our very own selves in that regard. But increasingly, it's going to be a fight against our culture. In 2 Timothy, Paul again writing about the end times, I think. 2 Timothy 4, the first five verses, I solemnly charge you, this is Paul writing to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That is simply going to be accentuated at the end of the present time where People will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. We ultimately believe what we want to believe. We ultimately find plausible what somehow flatters us or serves us or satisfies something in our desires. If our desire is not for truth, but it's for something else, then we're going to believe what satisfies that something else within us. So the battle is going, at the end of time, honoring God by embracing his truth is not going to be what the culture is all about. It's not what the church is going to be all about. It's not what Christians are going to be all about. And it's not what the non-Christian culture is going to be all about. So we're going to have to 
go to battle with all the other influences around us and resist them. The culture won't help us. It will only be a hindrance. Let me look at Second Peter here for a second. In chapter 3, I won't read the whole thing. At the end of this exhortation about at the end of time and how mockers will arise saying everything's always been the same. Where is this Jesus coming back that you've been talking about? And they're going to mock it. But the very end of that chapter, he says, Therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So knowing this ahead of time, knowing that at the end, this is going to be what you're up against, be on your guard, that you not be carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. We're going to be sorely tempted to, instead of embracing truth, believe what we need to believe that's going to deal with my fears or deal with my wants or deal with my sensuality or deal with this or deal with this other thing. We're going to be sorely tempted to go out there and shop in the marketplace of ideas for those ideas that give me what I want on my terms. But we're not called to believe what we believe on our terms. We're called to believe the truth on God's terms. What is actually going on? What has God actually ordained? What's the reality that God actually created? Not what's this world that we all want him to have created. What's the world that he actually created? And to know that, to understand that, and live in the light of that. That's what we're called to. But increasingly, people are not even going to be interested in that. I think we're already seeing it. There was an interview where the issue was gay marriage, and somebody was interviewing a guy, and he said, what do you think God would think of that? And his answer was sort of chilling, actually. His answer was, I think God should butt out of it. It's honest. (laughs) That is so, so exactly where the culture is. I don't care what God thinks. He should stay out of it. It's none of his business. That's not what we're called to. We're called to know what God knows and understand what he understands. Third thing, not only pursue a love of God, but pursue moral purity, which is closely related to the love of God. We need to be single-minded in our pursuit of moral purity. Plant it deep within our heart that righteousness is the all-important pursuit of my existence. Godliness, goodness, being a good person as as that would emulate the goodness of God. That's why I'm here. That's why God gave me being, is to be that kind of individual. As Jesus put in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Let that be the craving that we allow to develop and well up from deep within. One of the most tragic realities of our present day is the total disregard for righteousness in our life choices among Christians. How many of us as Christians do not even consider the fact that our faith places a significant demand on us? We don't want it to put any demands on us. We want it to bless us. We want it to give us benefit. We want it to give us goodness. But we don't want any demands on us. But it places a significant demand on us. We are called to live a holy life. If we're not 
pursuing a holy life, in pursuit of godly righteousness, we don't belong to him. We are not his disciples. Then the fourth thing is, and this now is a departure from what has been true any other time in my lifetime, I think we need to prepare for martyrdom. And we need to prepare for martyrdom by becoming convinced of Jesus' own perspective. Let me look at the Luke passage in Luke. This is Jesus speaking. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. I love that. (laughs) But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into Gehenna the garbage dump, the incinerator, has authority to cast into Gehenna. Yes, I tell you, fear him. If we can get that perspective, then we are prepared for anything that might come. What's the worst that anybody can do to me? Kill me. Not sure that's always what we're most afraid of, but it's the most substantial thing. It's the most substantial harm that anyone could give to me. Well, how substantial is that? Not very That's what Jesus is saying. It's not significant. All they've done is end your, this period of your existence in the here and now. They've put a bookend on that. But what awaits you? Popping up out of the grave to live eternally in the eternal kingdom of God. That's what awaits you. And we were not made for this world right now anyway. This is just a preparation. This is just a testing ground to see who we are to see whether we are going to be people who are going to go on and endure and exist in the eternal kingdom of God, or are we going to destruction? But once the testing is done, then we get on with what our, my existence was actually all about from the very get-go, the eternal kingdom of God. That's what I was made for. That's what my heart longs for. That's what we all want. And we all know at some level deep inside that that's what we want. And we're frustrated here because we don't have it. This existence is bittersweet, it's absurd, it's confusing. It's not what I was made for. No, it never has been. Again, that's the tragic reality of Christian culture, is Christian culture has become so focused on the here and now, on the testing ground. I've come that you might have a really abundant test, that you might have abundant life here and now during this testing period. Well, has anyone ever had abundant life here and now in this testing period? No, of course not. We mourn, we weep, we're frustrated, we're defeated, we're sabotaged by our own sinfulness, our own depravity, we're victims of the evil of other people. This is a grievous existence that we're in right now. But that's not what we were made for. We were made for that blessed existence that is going to be ours at the end, in the age to come. That should be the focus of all biblical teaching, of all Christian churches. I know many of you have heard me say this, but I just I shudder now thinking back on the time in college when the college group was singing that chorus, Do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me. I've got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. And little smart Jackie stood up after the chorus to set everyone straight. Little Jackie who wasn't sure that Karl Marx was completely not a saint, to warn everybody that Christianity is not about pie in the sky by and by. Christianity is about victory and abundance and living a life of prosperity and fulfillment right here, 
right now. What a fool. What an absolute fool I was. When I finally got around to reading the Bible (laughs) and understanding the Bible, I came to realize how absolutely true it is that this is a temporary, transit period that we are passing through on our way to something bigger and better and more grand. The Negro spirituals understand that. That's what makes them so rich. You know, when you're a slave in the cotton field, it's hard to talk about having life abundantly in the here and now, I would imagine. But those who believed grasp how much that that was not what defined their existence. In the eyes of God, there's something else that defined their existence, and they sang about it with real passion and earnestness. So that's what prepares us for martyrdom. When we gain that perspective, when we have that perspective that Jesus taught us to have, all they can do is kill the body, and that's all they can do. What a fool I would be if I accepted condemnation to eternal destruction in an attempt to secure longevity for myself here and now. What a fool I would be. Even if they imprison me and take away my freedom to live in the here and now as I please, a wonderful gift that many of us have enjoyed here living in America, one of the few cultures of the world that has ever allowed that. They can take that away from me, but they can't ever take away from me the only thing that matters, my ability to live my life in submission to and obedience to my Creator. I can do that in prison. I don't need to be free to do that, and that's the only thing that ultimately matters. Fifth thing, I think we're going to have to learn to not entrust ourselves to any human being. I was struck by this in the Gospel of John. John, in the second chapter, is talking about Jesus' early ministry. And early on, he went to Jerusalem. We don't have a lot of details, but he went to Jerusalem early on, even before he had performed some of the, many of the miracles that he had performed in the Galilee. And he was doing miracles in Jerusalem. And here he says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. Okay, so because he was doing these miracles, he was getting people's attention. They were attracted to him, and they were intrigued by him, and they were following him, and they were praising and honoring him to some extent. What was Jesus' response to that? What would my response be to that? Yeah, yeah, I'm the Messiah. Kind of gratifying to have you recognize what an important dude I am. That's how I would respond. How did Jesus respond? But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. That is, I don't trust you. (laughs) You may be on my side today. You'll be against me tomorrow. You'll be wanting me crucified tomorrow. You'll be walking away apathetically tomorrow. I mean, even in John 6, he feeds them, the 5,000, and they came looking for more bread, and he tells them, I am the bread of life. And they go, yuck, no thanks, and walk away. If he's not feeding them, they're not interested. So Jesus doesn't take his popularity as being substantial. It's not substantial. Their response to him is not a substantial response to him. He doesn't trust their response to him. On his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew how fickle and untrustworthy and evil and depraved and sinful human beings are. And do other believers, are they trustworthy? No, not really. Not really. 
We may be children of God that are being sanctified, but on a dime, my depravity and my falseness can manifest itself. So my trust has to be in my creator, not in one another. I can't even trust you, and you can't trust me. Sixth thing, I think we need to focus on convincing others to believe and commit. God's agenda, we know, is to form a people that are going to be a people for all of eternity. It's what Paul in Ephesians and Colossians calls the pleroma, the fullness. God's project is to call to himself a people who are going to live together with Jesus for all of eternity in the eternal kingdom of God. I need to recognize what a priority that is, how much that is the divine project, and play a role in calling out people, inviting people, persuading them to become a part of that people by believing the truth and embracing the truth. Seventh point, we must not get caught off guard by being distracted by the busy everyday business of life. In that Thessalonians passage I read, but since we are of the day and not of the night, that is, since we are sober and awake and alert and with it and know what's happening, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. We're not asleep, or I guess I should say, let us not be asleep. Let us not be asleep. Let us rather be children of the light and of the day. Let's be alert. Don't be one more person who is too busy eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage to become prepared to meet God's judgment. If it's a mistake to become overly occupied in the pursuit of grown-up activities, that's what I'm calling eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Those are grown-up activities. If Paul tells us, warns us, that it's a pursuit to get preoccupied with them, how much more is it a mistake to become overly occupied in the pursuit of childish activities? Play, games, recreation, entertainment, and so on. Part of the problem, part of the evils of our culture is our preoccupation with entertainment. We are entertaining ourselves to death. And not being of the day, it puts us to sleep. It puts us in a slumber where we're not even aware of what's going on around us because we're so passionately in pursuit of having fun. There's work to do. There's a pleroma of God that God wants to form, and he wants me to be a part of that. He wants me to be in that. I need to take care of myself by solidifying and fortifying my own knowledge and understanding and belief, and I need to invite others into that. There's no time to do that if I spend every day all the time pursuing fun and recreation. The rest is what awaits us. I think there will be a lot of fun in the eternal kingdom of God, but that's the place for rest and fun and Shabbat. The time now is for labor and for work, and I think we must not lose sight of that. We need to pursue our pursuits and yet remember the time that we are in. Human beings being human beings, we're not going to stop being human beings. We're not going to stop pursuing in our lives the things that human beings pursue. We're going to go to work. We're going to make money. We're going to have a vocation. We're going to have hobbies. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. That's fine. That's just part of what it means to be a, a human being. But we need to be sober. 
recognizing and remembering the time that we're in, that this is going to come to an end, and it's going to come to an end sooner rather than later. So we need to make sure that we're prepared for that end that is coming. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to charge on ahead here. Perhaps a more important point, we need to remember the time, but don't let fear control you. It is so easy when we start contemplating, but it could get ugly. There could be persecution. There could be people dying. There could be people starving. There could be people dying in natural disasters of one kind or another. We're not exactly sure what the signs of his coming are going to be, but they could be catastrophes of one kind or another. We may be in for a very, very chaotic and frightening time. And again, being afraid, feeling afraid is just human, and that's right. But fear must not control my choices, and it must not control my actions. I like to think we just read about the New Yorker article that says we're all going to experience an earthquake that's going to, we're all going to be toast over here. Probably your response was, okay, and then you went to work, right? (laughs) I mean, you, you didn't drive east. You just went to work and went on with your daily life. You went to the coast. (laughs) Oh, cool, a a tsunami. I think that's the appropriate response. If I'm not toast here, I'm toast somewhere else. If God wants me to be toast, I'm going to be toast. So there's nothing wrong with recognizing that God who controls all this stuff is going to be the one who dictates what my life is, what my story is, what my narrative is, and how I'm going to die and if I'm going to die. And to leave it in his hands is the perfectly appropriate thing to do. So we shouldn't, out of fear, get paranoid and make crazy, inhuman choices about where we go from here and what we do. But we should remember the time that it is coming, and it shouldn't surprise us when it comes. If you have non-adult children or grandchildren, we need to teach the truth of the biblical teaching to them in order to prepare them for what lies ahead. Wow, the world that they're going to grow up in is treacherous. If anyone needs to be grounded from early on in what truth is, it's our young children. Question, should we keep our heads low to try to stay under the radar, or should we raise them up high and make ourselves a target for persecution? I don't think there's a general answer to that. Each individual story will be different. Each individual has his own assignment from his Lord. Some will feel compelled to stand up and speak, and they will be targeted, and they will be persecuted. Others are going to be called to simply live out their lives quietly and go unnoticed. They may escape persecution, not due to cowardice, but by the grace of God. By the grace of God, they escape, but hopefully not because of cowardice. In Revelation 13, he's speaking about the Jews, I think, in the land of Israel at the time. But he writes, If anyone is meant for captivity, to captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed by the sword, he must be killed by the sword. Here is the perseverance and belief of the holy ones. That is, do we keep on believing, even though the possibility exists, that that will bring about captivity or death? I think in our own way, that's what awaits us as well, and we're going to have to make that choice. But our imagination can go wild there. During the Roman times, when Christians were persecuted, it wasn't everywhere. 
It wasn't all over the empire. It wasn't that every Christian was having to run in fear of the Roman authorities. It depended upon where you were and what particular local governor had an axe to grind. There are places where it got pretty ugly. There are other places in the empire where Christians skated just fine. I suspect that's the way it's going to be in America. Some people are going to be targeted, and some people are going to be called by their creator to endure suffering for the sake of their belief. Others of us are going to escape by the grace of God. That's fine. That's okay. It's God who tells our story. It's God who constructs our story. The question is, am I willing to accept the script that God has given to me? That's always the question. My 12th point, now I think, and this is again unique to our time right now, now is not the time to expect a spiritual awakening. I don't think we're on the verge of another reformation or another great awakening. I don't think that's in the script. If I'm wrong, wonderful. I would love to see this be a big curveball that God is throwing me, in any case, and that this whole series is a big swing and a miss. (laughs) And I have to go, oops. (laughs) I'd love for that to be true. I would love to see another Reformation. That would be, in its own way, a really, really, really exciting thing for God to do. But if I'm right in the prophetic picture of the end times, I don't think it's in the cards. don't think it's what God has scripted. Now, the objection that would be raised is that as we look at the darkness currently all around us is, but Jack, that's no obstacle to God. God who turns the hearts can turn the hearts like that, and he can bring about whatever he wants to bring about. Absolutely, that's true. There's absolutely no question but what that's true. But that's kind of not the issue, because although the darkness that surrounds us may not be an obstacle to God, God's will is an obstacle to God. God is going to do what he has willed to do. God is going to run history the way he has predetermined that he is going to run history. And what I'm arguing is that as I look at the prophetic picture, where we get some glimpse in advance of what God's will is, and he's given us some clues about what it's going to look like, that's what I'm arguing, is I think we're stuck here The will of God is that this is going to get worse until it's over, and then it's going to be over. I don't think we're going to see another Reformation. God does not make history to go the way I want it to go. God makes history go the way he wants it to go. Okay, I managed to get through most of my notes here. We have five minutes. Any questions or comments? I'm not sure if I understood your point about trust and not being able to trust people and other people not being able to trust. That seems a little bit like fearfulness. So I'm not sure if I'm understanding what no, you I'm, mean No, I'm by not trust. saying be afraid of people. I'm just saying understand, know that who they are and don't trust them. So like in the example you gave in the story with Jesus, it seems like the trust that he's not giving is... Like you were saying, like you would feel like, yay, I'm, this is great. I'm the Messiah. Everybody likes me. So I'm going to kind of use that to bolster my confidence in this mission and plan. Exactly. Um, and plan accordingly. Mm-hmm. So Jesus and the disciples get together. We've got some momentum now. How can we build on this momentum? Let's, and I can just see Jesus around the, the boardroom table. Uh, it's not going to last. Don't count on it. 
What do you think the analogous situation would be for us in the coming times? Like, would it be like a movement starting and feeling like, yay, there's hope now? People that would are... be one. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That would be one. Is there safety in banding together in a community of believers to protect ourselves against the onslaught that's coming? Well, it would be if those other believers weren't people. But because they're people, I'm not saying it wouldn't be a good idea. Some of you may do that, and it may be a great idea. But don't trust it. Don't make that the foundation of your safety. The only safety is in God, the protection of God. I see what you're saying. Like, Don't get fooled into thinking that there's some way that you can be safe. Just like it would be like, I want to escape the earthquake here, so I'm going to move somewhere else. Well, a natural disaster. Go to Yellowstone. Yeah. Yeah. And escape the earthquakes, I'll go to Yellowstone. (laughs) Yeah, so it would be silly to think that I could find some way of escaping this. The only safety is in recognizing that one way or the other, God is going to take care of us. Yeah, and like he says in that Revelation passage, if it's to captivity, to captivity he will go. If it's to the sword, to the sword he will go. God is going to take our life the way he's going to take our life. It is going to happen. I can't avoid it. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified because it, it would be easy to take the flip side of what you're saying, don't trust people as a safety net. As, as a safety net, yeah, right? Yeah, so exactly. I'm going to be really guarded and not trust and people. And then I'll be okay. And then I'll be okay. <laughs> but yeah. the point that you're really making is just don't see this group of people as a safety net. Right. And we have to be on our guard against the opposite of that, too. And we need to guard ourselves that we are not treacherous toward others. I think before all this is done, there are going to be a lot of treacherous things done by believers to other believers before this is all over. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Apparently, I missed your definition of courageous. Like, we need to be courageous. Can you elaborate on a little bit? Courage is feeling deeply and profoundly frightened but doing the right thing anyway, even though it frightens me to do that. Yeah, courageous is not about how we feel. It's what we choose, what we think, what we believe, by committing to what's good and right and true and pursuing what's good and right and true, even in the face of incredible fear. All right, that makes sense. Okay, I've run out of time. Thank you for indulging me.